0: Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack DeRora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two.
1: You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day. With social justice issues dominating our culture, our focus became how do we as lawyers make a difference?
0: And now it's not just us. Today, we have Tim Young, Ohio's public defender. With Tim, we're going to explore what effects status, wealth, privilege have on the criminal defendant receiving a fair trial that is uh, guaranteed under the Constitution to all of us, Jack. Welcome Tim.
1: Thank you. I was going to say it's guaranteed, but it doesn't always happen.
0: It doesn't. Uh, Theoretically, the um, race uh, and class neutral would be the two ways I would defined the criminal justice system, but there are a lot of disparities. I got uh, two examples for you, Jack. There was a real estate tycoon, Tiffany Lai. She was charged with orchestrating the murder of her children in 2017. Bail was set at $35 million, a record at that time. And sure enough, her and her family were able to raise a cash bond of $66 million, and she was set free pre-trial. And then uh, you may remember this. There was an NFL football star, Dante Stallworth, who mm. um, had a DUI and uh, also killed a person uh, while drunk driving in Florida. And um, he pled guilty and received 30 days in jail. I read an article from a public defender in uh, Florida in that jurisdiction that said that the minimum that most people would receive would be 4 years in jail. And the uh, guidelines that Florida had might suggest 10 years. And so it was an example uh, to him of somebody with wealth or privilege receiving a much uh, smaller sentence. Am I allowed to top
1: you? With what? A better story. Sure. In writing for the dispatch a few years ago, I wrote about a case that one of Tim Young's uh, colleagues handled it was a gent by the name of Kevin Keith, and I don't know how I did it, but I stumbled on the name of Jeffrey Epstein before Jeffrey Epstein became a household world. I forgive me. I like to pat myself on the back for being ahead of times, but Epstein, you know, trafficking young girls, he got a slap on the wrist. He got thirteen months in the county jail. I think he was allowed to go home every workday. I think he stayed in the jail on the weekend. Keith, uh, Kevin Keith in comparison, tremendous allegations about evidence, exculpatory evidence being suppressed, and he's serving, I think, a life sentence at uh, Marion Correctional. Now, let's put race and money into the picture here. Jeffrey Epstein, a white guy in Florida worth billions, Kevin Keith, a black man of modest means in Bucyrus, Go figure.
2: I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't remind you, Kevin, Keith started on death row. They were trying to kill him. He, he presented an evidence case uh, of, of innocence to the clemency for the governor for reasons we still aren't clear because we didn't ask for anything less. It was let him go um, because he's factually innocent. Um, for some reason, the governor chose to get rid of the death penalty um, but kept him in prison. The evidence doesn't support that. It's, I it's one or the other. If he did this, he killed six people and he didn't do this. But...
0: Tim, in your practice, do you see these disparities? Is it uh, that obvious to you as a practitioner uh, day in and day out? Oh, every day.
2: Every day. I thought it was common, kind of just common at this point that people accepted there were, there were two completely separate justice systems out there. There was a, a, a justice system for the rich and white and a, and a justice system for the poor and black. Um... Those representing the polar opposites of how you can be treated and what access you have to, to due process and those fundamental rights that are supposed to be guaranteed to you in the Constitution.
0: When I think about that, I think about wealthy people. They're really not exploiting the system. They're just using their resources to get what we should all have. Uh, you know, the, the the same rights and the same access to justice. Uh, most of your clients fall on which part of that continuum? Rich and wealthy, or Poor and are uh, minorities. Uh, my, my clients are,
2: are poor, um, predominantly uh, African American, BIPOC folks. Um, the reality is that eighty percent of people charged with crimes in Ohio, and and this is pretty true across the United States, but in Ohio specifically. About 80% of those people charged with crimes for which you can go to jail, not that you necessarily will, but that you can go to jail. So we're not including speeding tickets and your minor infractions like jaywalking, but a jailable offense, starting with your your basic drunken disorderlies and then obviously the other end of the spectrum is, is your murder cases. About 80% of those people are poor, um, poor in the sense that they qualify for counsel to be appointed to them, that they can't afford to, to pay for counsel of their own. And that standard is really low in the sense of how much money we're talking about. We, we use the Department of Health and Human Services poverty standards, which are horribly low and have been artificially suppressed for decades. Poverty in America today is, I think, $14,000. We, we use 125% of poverty. So if you make above, I think it's $16,000, $17,000 if you're a single individual, supposedly or supposed to be able to hire your own lawyer. Doesn't happen.
0: <laughs> so there's the people that are poor by definition of the the poverty levels and then there are people that are poor that are above that level that just can't afford a lawyer. What do they do? Well, if they can't afford
2: a lawyer and they've made an honest effort to get a lawyer, the, the Supreme Court of Ohio decided a number of years ago that the question wasn't just a mathematical evaluation of your expenses and income. Um, that it ultimately came down to, can you actually afford a lawyer? Um, so, you know, as so much of America today after, well, not today, but, but let's just, just say 10 years ago, um, the great recession still going on, um, we're house poor and we're living month to month and, and we're considered middle class if you looked at the neighborhood from outside, but when you looked at the actual expenses, they couldn't hire a lawyer. There were a lot of questions and a lot of pushback during the the great recession about who qualified and who didn't because of those underwater mortgages and the real downturn in the economy for income and there were a lot of people if you don't have regular cash income and this can't be assets that you can't make somebody sell a house it takes months and months and months to sell a house a case has speedy trial time limits it has to go to trial and you're entitled to a lawyer now not Six months from now, is when when your house closes, these have to be liquid assets, cash equivalents.
1: Let me let me change the direction here just a little. When we say people like Epstein or the other folks that Gonzo mentioned get treated differently, is it a they just hire more lawyers, more gifted lawyers, have the benefit of more private investigators? Is there also the matter of The system just treats white people differently? Well, yeah, you can't divorce race from this. Well, let's talk about that. Absolutely not. Well, first of all, let's do two things. First of all, tell me about the difference in buying power that someone – of means has. What does that mean in terms of getting a defense team? And then secondly, let's talk about those intangible factors related to race. Can you do that? Sure.
2: Well, when you talk about buying power, you're, you're talking about the cost of, of presenting the case and the hours of the lawyer and how much you can afford. And then also all the ancillary costs. Are there experts needed? Was there gunshot residue? Is there some blood splatter? Is there... All of those is their DNA to be tested. All of those things aren't just tests, but they require humans with deep and long expertise, and they're expensive. Um, So your buying power goes a long way. A, A lawyer today, a top criminal lawyer, is probably charging $500 an hour. Um, even in this town, you're $1,000 an hour in east-west coast situations. Those aren't uncommon numbers. Who, who can afford that? But think about when you can't afford that, what you can bring to bear. Much of our criminal justice system is built on the imbalance that presently exists for most people who go into the system. When you walk in as a poor black man and you've been accused of a crime, you have the assets of that county and the entire state government um, in terms of their ability to bring a case against you. Existing situations, you you have a police department with well-trained police officers, not just trained in investigative techniques, but trained in actually testifying against you. That's part of their training. They're professional witnesses. They have access to millions of dollars, so hiring of those experts are not a problem. But the reality is they have most of those experts on staff. They have crime labs that are not associated with the defense, but they work with the attorney general's office and local police departments and investigative services. They're clearly for prosecution services. So those are all on staff. And and if that's not enough, you pick up the phone and you call the FBI or or the ATF and the feds can come in and offer a hand as well if you're working like a drug task force. So now you have the resources of the federal government coming against you and you have a, a, a poor black person who's been charged with a crime who has been appointed a lawyer or given a public defender. Ohio uses both systems, public defenders um, who are full-time employees of a public defender office or appointed lawyers who are private lawyers who are paid, but they're paid at a scale that the county chooses. That scale, the highest in Ohio, $85 an hour. That's the Top end. Let's... Average is well below $75 an hour. We've been pushing for a long time and a number of counties have come up to 75 and And I have to give a shout out to, to the current administration and Governor De- De- DeWine. Much of that would have never happened without huge resources that he's, he's actually brought into the system to finally let those numbers come up. Because those numbers used to be $35, $45 an hour. And I remind people, please remember, you pay more for a plumber to come to your home than we pay for people's potential loss of their freedom per hour. And it's not $75 an hour forever. It's capped. There's a cap to this. At some point, the government says, eh, that's all we're paying for, even if the case isn't over. That's the max number. And you have to get special permission from the judge who may or may not grant it. Often doesn't, if you want to be paid more.
1: So, in simple terms, it's not a fair fight.
2: Oh, it's never been a fair fight. You have – look, until 1963, you didn't even get a lawyer. The government came against you with all those resources I mentioned and they were represented by lawyers and you sat alone. You didn't have a right to counsel in this country until 63. Is that the Gideon case? That's Gideon. And that's just felony offenses. Please remember, it was another decade. They were still putting people in jail all the time for misdemeanor offenses, assault, those kinds of things that didn't rise to felony level. But, but there are a lot of states you can spend a year of your life in jail on a misdemeanor. Ohio's maximum is six months. But there are a number of states that it's a year. A year without a lawyer. So it was in the 70s when you finally were guaranteed a lawyer in misdemeanors as well.
1: Let's go to the intangible part of that because that's the really subtle and sinister part. I remember – I don't know if it was some fraternity problem, drunk kid doing bad things and, and the defense attorney. I can't remember where I'm reading this as well. You know, Judge, he comes from a good family. Of course I'm not I don't know what the heck that has to do with any of the criminal acts he committed, but that's sort of what goes code. on. Let's talk about code and let's talk about what the race or the income level what that brings subtly into the courtroom.
2: The functional reality is much of our criminal justice system was largely created post slavery in America. Most of our police departments were created out of out of slave trading that turned into legitimate tracking down people who black people generally who were charged with minor infractions so they could be put right back on the plantations that they had worked on the day before when they were slaves. And and that's the horrible ugly truth that we built out of that. And and America still continues to struggle with race mightily. The functional reality is there's as I as far as I know by measure, there is no more racist system than our justice system. Um, And I'm not saying it's intentional. And we have to be very, very, very clear. People want to define racism as this incredibly narrow, intentional act. You speak some horrible word. And and without that, it's not racist. Um, If you didn't actually intend that harm. But we forget about The huge amount of unintended bias that we all have, especially as a culture that has been dominant white for – since the beginning of this country. And and what happens is you end up with systems that have people well-intentioned with biases that aren't being curbed. You have actual racism in the system. Please, there are real racists who don't say so, but they work in the system. Everywhere has got that. I I mean – It's impossible not to. But the unintentional piece has huge, huge impact on on the outcome. And, and, And if I may, real quickly, I am unaware of a single study that doesn't find racism at every single step in our justice system. Let me say that in the reverse. Every single moment a black person comes into contact with our justice system, there will be a measurable outcome difference that can only be attributed to race, not to prior criminal activity or to some other risk factor. But you eliminate all the others and all that's left is race. And what I mean is you'll be stopped more often driving a car. There is not a single study in America of driving while black that didn't end up. Yep. Police stop black people a heck of a lot more. In some places, 10 times more. There was a police department on the East Coast that got really upset, claimed, oh, no, no. We've done all kinds of diversity, equity, inclusion work. We're not racist. That's just I guess the the, the intention or their message was black people are worse drivers. Um. So the group that did the study went right back to the exact same spot that they had done the study, controlled for everything, but they did it at night when you couldn't see the color of the driver. And when they did that study and they measured the number of stops, race fell out. Black people weren't being stopped as much. So only during the daytime when you could see them. Every single study, so you've got, that's just the stop. Black people are far more likely to be pulled out of the car and searched. I have never spoken in a public forum that I didn't ask the question. When I asked the question, And and there were black people in the audience and I said, black men, how many of you have not been pulled out of a car? How many of you have been pulled out of a car? Every single hand will go up. Every single hand. I don't know about you or you, (coughs) but for me as a white man, I've been stopped multiple times. I have never been asked to exit my vehicle. Not once. Not once, polite interactions, I was speeding, they gave me the ticket, went on my way. I don't know a black person who hasn't been asked to step out of the vehicle. And then their vehicle gets searched. And then you get these really weird pieces. Studies show that they're far more likely to be written more tickets. So when they were stopped for speeding or uh, not using a turn signal, they're also then written up for a loud muffler and for a cracked windshield, and for all these uh, excuse me, for all these other minor infractions that, that occur. So once you've got there, then the choice to arrest occurs. Let's assume it's not just a traffic violation, but there's some other interaction with the police. Black people are far more likely to get arrested. Once arrested, far more likely to be held in jail on higher bonds once you get to the point of plea bargaining the case far more likely to get worse offers offers that include more jail or prison time once you get to the point of actually serving sentences black people serve much more time than white people and they serve it hugely disproportionate amounts the number of black people in ohio's prisons today it's it's astronomical compared to the population Then parole at the back end in terms of getting parole and being released and in terms of recovering your rights. It measures it every single step. Our system is racist. It it can't – it's unfortunate but it is, period, bottom line.
0: I was uh, telling Jack today that I had read a Times article. uh, This is from 2020 but uh, talked about uh, the United States Supreme Court just on what you're saying, at every level. And it had an article about Justice Scalia, and it said that uh, he voted for defendants to overturn the conviction in non-white criminal cases about 7% of the time, white 82% of the time. Uh, Obviously, I'm not suggesting he's racist, but his voting record would suggest there's a disparity there that cannot be really reconciled And if I can, that's
2: the functional problem. We're afraid to call it what it is. It's racism. Maybe he didn't intend it, but those outcomes are unexplainable by any other means. The numbers in Ohio are unexplainable by any other means. It's it's, as a white dominant society, we get so offended and taken aback. Oh, I'm not racist. OK, maybe you're not. But that means we only include in racism those really narrow definitions. I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of the minority, of the black man for a minute who's doing the time or being pulled out of the car or being searched. And everybody in that process, oh, I'm not racist, I'm not racist, I'm not racist, every step. But yet he still ends up in prison and I don't. From his point of view, it doesn't matter what you define it as. It's still racism. The outcome is still based solely on his race.
1: Well, we we just don't like to give. Yeah. We don't want to give credence to subconscious thought. That's the that's sort of the boogie part of it. Weren't there other examples that you and I had talked about regarding Supreme Court decisions?
0: Well, it was uh, less about that issue, but more about protecting the wealthy and the rich. Uh, the Supreme Court um, obviously, uh, uh, you know, has uh, been striking down campaign finance limits that basically benefits rich corporations and rich people. Um, when you think about uh, civil cases, they did away or uh, made restrictions on class action lawsuits, punitive damages. Again, mostly if you think about it to protect the wealthy and the rich, uh, there's a, a this Times article was incredibly insightful about how our Supreme Court favors, uh, and I say are, the United States Supreme Court favors the, the rich and the wealthy. It's uh, It was really an eye-opener. It's the establishment. Well, and, and I think it's
2: really important to remember there's there's different types of conservatism in America. Um, people were talking about Roberts compared to Rehnquist, and I think that's a really good comparison talking about the Supreme Court. Rehnquist was a conservative in the sense that he, most of his leanings were towards originalism, That that original what did the Constitution mean? And so from his point of view, if you do the balancing of individual rights versus the government, the government generally won. That was that balance of of where his conservatism landed. The Roberts court isn't that type of conservative court. That's not what they're about. They balance and, – and, and I guess in the Rehnquist court, government and I think you probably then put corporations and then individual rights if you were to – hierarchy them. And the Roberts court is really, really clear that it's corporations that are first, that it's business that is first above government in terms of those fundamental rights and individual rights are still a long, long third if, if considered at all. The very, very few times the Supreme Court has taken up race um, in the criminal justice area that it's really taken it on, head on, it, it has done it right once when it got rid of the, the death penalty based upon the statistics back in the 70 – in 72, I think it was, the, the numbers were overwhelming. That The charges were being brought because there are black people who killed white people generally and that's still true today. What's really, really horrible is shortly after the Supreme Court allowed the death penalty to start back up again in the 80s, statistics started to build. And today the statistics are worse – Than in 72 when they got rid of the Supreme Court – when they got rid of the death penalty.
1: Statistically
2: on race, the the racial, racial bias of the death penalty is just overwhelming. They're worse today than when we got rid of it before. Today the law is different. The Supreme Court changed the law on us. We can't bring statistical evidence of racism anymore. The types of cases that we can bring on race spaces are now that really narrow field. The most recent example, they actually did the right thing on a, on a juror bias case, on what's called a Batson case where you throw juror potential jurors off only because of their race, they had one of the most clear examples ever. The prosecutor markings on, on the juror questionnaire forms about B for brown person and strike, um, used rationale that that was identical for other people that these black people couldn't serve because you know they were young and they weren't going to be sympathetic except there were three white people of the exact same age or issues they hadn't even questioned the person on. But But ultimately, excuse me, ultimately, the Supreme Court got that decision right. But they only because literally short of the N-word being included in the prosecutor's notes, everything else was basically we made racist decisions in how we picked this jury. They practically wrote that in, in, their, in their notes that were available. But short of that, it doesn't matter what statistics I bring anymore. The overwhelming social studies that say these outcomes are only because of race. I can't bring in the criminal courts anymore. They don't listen.
1: They're not allowed. When, that's striking. What, they're not allowed. I don't know what you mean by that.
2: There was a decision when the, when the court took back up the issue of statistical evidence in the death penalty. And I apologize. I wish I could think of the name of the case. And I'm gonna, it's going to scramble in my brain for right now. It's OK. But when they just took that case back up they talked about the statistical evidence. And if they accepted it, it basically, you know, unfortunately, the reality was this was the same statistical evidence they were going to see across the criminal justice system. And if they accepted that, then what were they going to do? And so as a result, we weren't going to accept this anymore. And and the standard now is actual racism, basically. You have to be able to prove that really narrow, intentional racism.
1: You know, I have a vague memory of what you're talking about. And I can't remember the name of the case, but it was to the effect of the evidence was offered and this justices just said it's – I don't think they said it's inadmissible, but they they just refused to rely on it.
2: They refused to give it any credence even though the numbers were overwhelming in terms of the bias. That That's the functional problem. And they basically said you can't – that's not acceptable evidence in cases anymore. So when we can show across patterns of behavior, we don't – we don't win even though those patterns of behavior show just despicable outcomes when you're talking about something that's supposed to be about fairness.
0: Well, you know, part of that is is the case in controversy that they, uh, the courts and especially the court of appeals want to look at what happened in this particular case with this particular defendant to decide if they had a fair trial, right, but not a perfect trial. And it is It's incredibly frustrating for the lawyers to have to get over these procedural hurdles when you can see the big picture of what's happening. And that's kind of what you're talking about. Let's not also forget about
2: the relationships and this white dominant society that continues to exist in our justice system. You're talking about I'm going into court and I'm asking the same judge because I have to go back to my trial judge to start this process, the same judge who oversaw the trial where my client was convicted, I now have to convince him to call the prosecutor racist. He may not put it in those words, but there's no other outcome if you give me a Batson ruling that says he's making racist judgments here. There's a pretty high chance that these two, the judge and the prosecutor, probably worked in the same office. A huge number of our judges are former prosecutors. That's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that basic human nature makes that even, even more difficult call on that interpersonal relationship issue of this isn't just a prosecutor appears in front of them. Please remember, our justice communities are local. They probably live in the same neighborhoods. They probably go to the same out at restaurants they end up at the same parties they have the same social circles there's a huge amount of social pressure not to say that that's built in that's just unfortunately, baked into the system the way it is today because you're going in front of that same judge. And then if I appeal it, I'm appealing it to a group of court of appeals who also probably used to be trial judges, which means they had the same relationships. And now they're being asked to say, you were all wrong and you were all racist. You didn't see a judge and Mr. Prosecutor, you were. These are really difficult hurdles because racism is such an, an, an it's it's such a lightning bolt type issue. I mean it is a third rail issue to talk about. And so the moment you get there – and it is such a fundamental problem in our justice system today. But getting somebody to call their neighbor, their coworker, their, their ex-subordinate or their superior a racist –
0: Well, that's a tough call. I would temper that just with the observation that, you know, you and I, when we're picking a jury, we're trying to get the people that are most identifiable with our client. So if you have a black gentleman sitting there and it's your client, you would like as many minorities and black people on the jury. Well, the prosecutors want as few because they know what we know. And so I I can see how a judge would be hard-pressed to say that the prosecutor is acting out of racism. Uh, What the prosecutor is doing is trying to build in the best jury to get a conviction. And a lot of – Jack, when you're on these appeals uh, and you're talking about prosecutor misconduct, I always go back to – and I'm I'm sure you do too – that the prosecutors have an overriding duty to the system – Uh, And not just to convict and trying to convince a court of appeals to hold that prosecutor to that overriding duty is like talking to this wall sometimes. Um, Because you're right, not only does you have to go back to the trial judge to get a conviction, usually it's the same prosecutor or their office that is now defending what had happened five years ago or 20 years ago. And they're very reluctant to say that somebody had made a mistake or did something wrong.
1: Well, it it seems to me that it all goes back – the challenge with it is that it all goes back to the fundamental problem of the human condition, which is we just don't like to self-examine. We don't want to inspect how we believe. We don't want to inspect how we think. I I,
2: I think some of that's true, Jack. I do. I think think...
1: a lot of it is because just think about it. When you are maybe criticized by your spouse – your first reaction, well, if you're Gonzo, you're you're very patient. You would say, "Okay, I was wrong." But most of us would say, "Oh, honey, there's no way I did that, right?" I we wasn't get defensive. Think, yes, we get defensive. Very so, quickly, so and, now, and the moment we get
2: defensive, all our wisdom and judgment goes out the window. And
1: so now we're thinking about our inner core on a very high level. Oh, I can't be a racist. I can't. So we refuse to acknowledge it. You're right. It is a third rail. Oh yeah.
0: Well, when we're talking about then how uh, wealth factors into um, this system, it's really the disparity in income between minorities and really white Americans, right? Because you're white and you have money, you get the benefit of the doubt, you get the more resources to fight the criminal justice system. If you're a minority without money, it's just an uphill battle. There's this strange cultural belief in America that money – And morality
2: are somehow related. No, really. We tend to immediately give some deference to rich people that they're also moral, which Mm -hmm. I think unfortunately goes to the Epstein story in a big way. He gets all these benefits. It's not just that he's a multimillionaire and can pay for all this stuff. Well, he must be a really bright guy with good judgment. So so we'll give him this deference about all of these other things, except what a horrible monster he was. What a horrific human being.
1: It's the same thing with the uh, fraternity student Mm -hmm. who's defended on the basis of he comes from a good family. (coughs) What does that good family have to do with what he did to the young woman after hours, right? Absolutely.
2: Well, the disparities in sentencing are, are extraordinary when you start to examine them.
1: Well, they say
0: money can't buy happiness, but apparently it can buy you a uh, better result in the criminal justice system. Uh, you had uh, said something earlier that uh, I wanted to follow up on and I get get back into the kind of the micro level here. When a person without means gets arrested and is put in jail without bond or bail or can't make it, uh, I've read statistics that they're more likely to be convicted of the crime, and I, I wasn't sure how to put those two together, that if you don't have enough money to get yourself out on bail or bond, why is it more likely that you're going to be convicted? Is it more of a plea well, bargaining I think, issue? Uh,
2: yes. I, I think that's a big piece of it. I think we can't also ignore the fact of how much of an assistance that the person who is accused of the crime can be in their own defense and being locked up in a cage with very limited phone call access and very limited mail access means you have very, very limited opportunity to assist in your own defense. You can't walk down the street where this happened and ask people, do they remember it or in the neighborhood you live in? And so you're then relying upon how much time does the investigator who works for the public defender or the investigator that may or may not exist, if the appointed counsel could get the judge to pay for one, because you have to go ask if you're appointed counsel for an investigator, um, to go out and and walk that neighborhood in the same way they could. So there's that huge piece of just preparing your own defense. Look, I, I'm your lawyer. You were there potentially. You know far more about this than I do. I need your help. and and that's why we measure whether a, a defendant is is capable of assisting in his own defense as part of the the sanity and and um, measures that we have for for being able to even be put um, to stand trial. But once you get there, then there's this huge pressure um, to resolve the case, you know, some end in sight. And you've got to remember the the plea bargaining system is such that you're sitting there in jail. They're offering you've now served on a fairly minor infraction, maybe twenty or thirty days. If you just plead guilty, you can go home today. So basically, you've been pre-sentenced, um, if you will. You've been pre-punished. That happens in municipal courts all the time. And so it's like, okay, you've done enough time now. Now we'll let you go if you just plea. If you want a trial, you can sit here for two more weeks while we get you a jury. That's that's, Or, or even a bench trial, it's, it's two more weeks. Um, then there's just also the pressure of the reduction in the charge. If, if Even if you're going to do more time, Okay, the max I'm facing is eight or nine years, but they're offering 18 months. I've already got two months in because I've been sitting here on a bond I couldn't afford. So I've got 16 left to do. I control my own destiny and never have to risk that other eight and a half years. That's an easy calculation for a lot of people, sadly.
0: Not being able to help in your own defense. I hadn't thought much about that, but um, Jack knows I do a little bit of criminal work for post-conviction and and some uh, uh, habeas. And uh, with COVID, you couldn't see your clients. And if you could get a phone call, they're limited. And about every 30 seconds, a voice breaks in saying, This can be recorded, and you're talking to an inmate. Um, when you can see your clients, at least at where I have been going, the London Correctional Facility, they put you in a room that's about I don't know, 10% of where we're sitting now, two chairs and a little coffee table. So you can't take notes. You can't really do any work other than talk to your client. Uh, I don't know how lawyers that do that full time could do that. I mean, Jack and I, when we have a client, we bring them to our conference room. we, We talk to them where we got coffee, you know food beverages it's a very relaxed um, it's it's got to be incredibly difficult oh, for jail,
2: jails and prisons have been really really hard to get in and out of to see the clients and and it really does it's not just to see them that barrier in communication it's different Uh, especially if it's not virtual. Uh, If you can't see the person, then it's just the voice. Uh, And that's hard to communicate everything you need to communicate about the case and ask all the questions you want to ask. So much communication is body language that as the lawyer, we read
0: that and then ask
2: a question that otherwise we may not have asked.
0: Go ahead. Oh, I was trying to get an idea about the resources too. Um, With an appointed counsel versus the public defender, uh, how does that work? How does somebody – get an appointed counsel or is it the public defender's decision?
2: Well, in Ohio, each county – so your county commissioners are making the initial choice on what system they'll have, whether they're going to put a PD office in place in that county or whether they're going to have a purely appointed counsel system. Even if you create a public defender office, you're still going to have appointed counsel. The public defender can't handle conflict cases where there are two defendants who committed a crime together and might be pointing their fingers at each other. Um, so, th- those need appointed counsel. There are always cases where you need a- appointed counsel. So, even in a PD system. Now, generally, when you've got both, how it works is the Cases come in through the PD office, and then whatever that excess is that they can't take, they know what their staffing is, they know how many cases they're going to be able to take, and then they push off those extra that day. So today we've got the staff to take, you know, 25 new cases in today, and 30 came through. So five are going to be pushed off to appointed counsel or or something along those lines. Now other counties make the decision just to not staff their offices as high. Um, For example, Cuyahoga County employs enough lawyers in its PD office to take a third of the felony. So two-thirds are specifically – they've designed that system. They could hire more PDs if they wanted to to take more cases. But basically in that system, the PD takes every third case. So it's a very local system in terms of how they're assigned out. In terms of the resources that are available – Depending on the court um, and, and office, but, but generally you probably have more resources available to you through a public defender than you do through appointed counsel and, and not in any way demeaning the quality of work being done by appointed counsel. It's just you don't have investigators on staff generally to go right. out. You've you got to go ask the court. You have to go ask the court if you can hire an expert. Most PD offices have an expert budget line so they can make the choice to go hire that expert and then consult with them without having to get somebody's approval and permission that may or may not be granted um, and, and, and often is not. Um, the One of the unspoken social rules in our criminal justice system in many counties is is counsel have learned not to ask. The judge says no, so you don't ask him and please remember we have a very strange system in ohio of appointed counsel Um, this doesn't exist anywhere else in the united states that i'm aware of in ohio an elected official the judge who's elected chooses which lawyer okay specifically he can reach down that list and choose a very specific person for the case It, it should be just a rotating system of those who are qualified to take that level of case who's next gets that case but In way too many jurisdictions, there's a subset of that list that the judge uses. So there might be 50 lawyers on the list, but the judge only uses 10. So he picks those 10 over and over and over and over. So he gets to pick the lawyer. So you have an elected official picking the player. And then at the end of the case, he gets to tell you how much you made. He approves your bill and he can cut the bill and he can add to the bill with absolute discretion. Just cut it. 10%. No reason, no accusation that you lied about the hours. Nothing, just cuts it. That doesn't exist anywhere on the, that doesn't exist in Texas, okay? Really? A trifecta <laughs> like that? And I, and I say that. I'm not saying it in jest. I'm, I'm saying it in all seriousness because let's take the justice system out of this for a second because we all think, oh, well, it's a judge and therefore we're all good. It's all going to be OK. But please remember that judge is a human being. Let's, let's take it to another system, a referee who's supposed to also be impartial. Let's, so let's go to a sporting event. Let's go to a basketball game and you go to watch your kids play. And they introduce one team, the home team, and everybody, yay, and your kid's on that team, and it's wonderful, and you're all cheering. And then they introduce the visiting team, and they introduce them all, and it's great. And then they introduce the referee. And by the way, we want to mention to all you folks today, our wonderful referee here, he recruited the entire opposing team, and he'll be paying them after the game. <laughs> sure. You, as a parent, how you feeling about the fairness of this game before it's even started? The system's broken. We're asking our judges to work within a broken, unfair system. That's not a fair system. You don't let the referee, umpire, judge, the impartial person be the picker of the teams and choose how much to pay them. That doesn't make sense. But we do it here and act like, well, how else would we do it? I don't know. Like all the other states where there's an office of appointed counsel oversees the professionalism of those lawyers, takes away and provides that independence that the court is supposed to and must
1: have. And there, and regrettably, no matter how bad a system is, it's always tremendously difficult to change it because if you speak out against the status quo Well, you're a heretic. Well, and
2: that's why I use the sports analogy. Because when you talk about it just from the legal field, people get their backs up about it. Like you're suggesting that we're picking lawyers, and I'm like, I'm just telling you the system's broken. And the moment you put it in a different adversarial context, people go, "Yeah, that's not right." Okay, it's not. It's structurally unsound. You have built in biases and taken away protections that exist. And we already have a system that is. Very ill-conceived in terms of the protections it provides. When when we give incentives, our system isn't about providing a fair trial. It's providing a finality to trial.
1: Well, I think courts manifest or or that is manifest by virtue of the fact that we seem to be – we seem to give greater weight to the fact that procedural requirements were met versus did we come to the right decision.
2: I think sometimes we just ignore it. I mean, let's 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 talk about ineffective assistance of counsel for just a minute, if if I may take us to a new direction. Ineffective assistance of counsel. You're entitled to a lawyer. We've talked about the whether it's appointed or a public defender, or you're rich enough to hire your own lawyer. You get a lawyer. Um, your lawyer's supposed to be effective, okay? How else do you get a fair trial unless they really subject the the evidence and the witnesses to the crucible of cross examination? Um, But when we measure that on appeal, let's say your lawyer was, I don't know, drunk during the trial or I don't know, let's say maybe asleep during portions of the trial. Or how about racist? He actually referred to his African-American client by the N-word during the trial. Take any of those probably really bad things, right? I'm, I'm fairly certain that those make me question the fairness of that, that trial. Every one of those has been found to be okay in America. Not in Ohio specifically, but every one of those examples I gave you, the courts of appeals said, you know what? Yeah, he was drunk, but not during the important parts. Yeah, he was asleep, but not during the important parts. Yeah, he's a racist, but show us how that changed the outcome. And your problem is, how do I show you change? the outcome? He was drunk. He didn't cross examine them. Well, isn't that the whole point? And that measure today is, oh, because you were really guilty, we don't have to give you a fair trial. You didn't get a fair trial, but because the evidence looks pretty overwhelming to us, we're not going to give you a fair trial. That's what ineffective of counsel assistance of counsel today is. And And respectfully, It's not guaranteeing you a good lawyer. It's not even guaranteeing you a mediocre lawyer. The standards that have been decided by the courts both in Ohio and across the United States say that your lawyer has to be just above crappy. That's the measure for ineffective assistance. Just above crappy and we're good.
0: Are there some standards for appointed or public defenders as far as can you – at, just out of law school, go on an appointed list and start doing felonies?
2: No, no. We, we the, the commission that oversees my office, the, the Ohio Public Defender Commission, a, a group of nine really great people, truly committed to the quality and standards, they have passed rules in Ohio about the level of experience, years of experience, and the n- amount of criminal law training you have to have before taking certain levels of cases. So you can get right out of law school and start doing misdemeanors. But you want to do a felony, some special training is required. You want to do a higher level felony. You have to have been a lawyer for a number of years, taken enough training during those years and had experience trying some cases. So by the time you get up to homicide cases, murder cases, you you have to have tried cases before, two juries, and you have to have taken enough continuing legal education credits in criminal law and have been a lawyer for a number of years. So those standards exist. Unfortunately, those aren't enforceable in courts. Those aren't the standards. The court standards for ineffective is still back to what we just talked about. Just,
1: just above crappy. Just
2: above crappy. And even not that. I'm, I'm sorry, drunken asleep is crappy. It just wasn't doing the important parts. How would you know it's an important part? They didn't do anything. I, I've, and why I bring all this up is I want you to think about the incentives involved in our system. Our incentives are, okay – Let's just make sure he does just a good enough job. We don't have to do this case again. I want you to think about if you were guaranteed a fair trial, not a perfect trial, just a fair trial where we all agreed we're not even going to look at how guilty you are. We're just going to see if you got a fair trial. Your lawyer is drunk. You didn't get a fair trial. Let's do that one again. I don't care how overwhelming the evidence was against you. (laughs) Look, we we can't sit on our haunches when that kind of stuff is going down in our court system. But think about how it changes. Oh, people be like, oh, we'd be retrying everything. No, we wouldn't. Judges would be intervening when they saw bad lawyering. Prosecutors would be taking up their duty, their oath to do justice because their, their oath is to do justice, not to get convictions. And justice involves making sure you get a fair trial. The defendant gets a fair trial. That is part of their job. And they'd be intervening because they'd see it not happening. And none of these cases would come back because we'd all be on the same team of let's make sure a fair trial happens. We're not on the same team adversarially, but we are all committed to it being a fair system. Today, our our decisions like an effective claim, that's not what it incentivizes. It incentivizes systems that favor the judge and the finality so we don't have to redo these cases. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: But we don't know if we got it right. We think we did because the evidence was overwhelming, but nobody cross-examined anybody. They were asleep.
1: And, and regrettably, as Gonzo and I have talked about, these same issues permeate the civil justice world as well. So, and we need to wrap up here, but when you look at what's going on with, let's say, the Congressional Committee trying to investigate January six, people are flocking to the courthouse to quash those subpoenas. They are doing things that the average breadwinner couldn't afford to do. But if you make enough money and you know enough lawyers, you will have a different outcome.
2: Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of well, the January 6th committees, for example, I'm not sure the goal is to not appear, it's to get through the next election and hope the power structure changes and then the committee goes away. Well, That's the, really what this is about. I have enough money to delay this system because sometimes it's just about delay, but you need money in the court system to delay things.
1: So only certain people have that ability.
0: Tim, thank you for being Ohio's public defender. We appreciate the time you spent with us. It was uh, incredibly interesting. Uh, It's good to meet you, and I hope we can have you back sometime. Uh, It's a pleasure being
2: here. I truly enjoyed the
1: conversation. It was a great conversation. Thanks so much. We'll be back in another few weeks with another episode and another guest. Join us so that it's not just us, but all of us promoting social justice. Our thanks as well to WOSU and our sound engineer, Eric French, Until then, so long.